Hello and welcome to Living Word Ministries, where everyone is a winner. Join us as we rightly divide the word of truth. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lord, we bless your name. Lord, we glorify you. We magnify you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, worship team. You can sit down. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. Amen. Good morning, church. Good morning. Amen. Now, we're going to have a very quick exercise. Um, the church is half full today, but we praise God. So, as many of you that can stand up, can I ask you to be on your feet, please? Amen. So, I'm going to ask a question. And if you... <laughs> Amen. If, if your answer to that question is yes then you get to sit down. Amen. If you're a single parent, can you sit down? If you have been raised by a single parent, can you sit down? If you have a friend that is a single parent, can you sit down? If you have a neighbor that is a single parent, can you sit down? If you have a work colleague that is a single parent, can you sit down? If you know anyone that is a single parent, can you sit down? That's what we're going to talk about today. Encouragement for single parents. That's what the Lord has laid on my heart. Now, we are in a generation where we have a family group that is rapidly growing. But when we look in the church, how much do we talk about these things? How much do we encourage people on how to deal with this family group. More often than not, we go for what's perfect. The father, the mother, and the children. And that's the ideal. That's what everyone would love. But in the reality of it, that is not what we're faced with. When I was growing up, all I heard about were single mothers. I didn't really hear much about single fathers. But now, if you notice, we don't talk about single mothers anymore. What we talk about is single parents. Because now, it cuts across. Now, but there's another group that people don't talk about, and which is very common. And I'll call them the married single parents. 
Now, the first time I ever had the opportunity to hold a mic and to minister, and this was years back, it was Mother's Day message, and I was asked to minister. And I ministered on a topic called Married Widows. And just to break that down very quickly, it's a group of women who are married, but don't feel that they're married because they're living their lives as if they haven't got a husband there. And that was the message. I'm not going to delve into that because that's not the purpose of today. But the same goes for married single parents. When you're married, you've got a wife, you've got a husband, whichever way it might be, but you're still lonely. You're still left holding the child or the children, as the case might be. And these are, this is an area that no one really talks about. And this is an area that we don't talk about in the church. And these are areas that actually affect our walk with God and affects us in the church. So when you drill down to the nitty-gritty of it, and you speak to someone and say, why couldn't you make church on Friday? Or why couldn't you participate in one of the groups in church? If they're going to be honest and tell you the truth, you might find that it's because some of them are so bogged down with their children that they haven't got time for anything else. And that's why it's important that the things that we face out there in the world, we need to deal with them in the church and encourage people on how to deal with those issues. And that's why our Christianity has to be practical. Dealing with what we deal with out there on a very day-to-day -day basis from the word of God. Now, unfortunately, there are people that end up being a single parent out of choice. I don't know if any of you know about the sperm banks. Right? Not God's best. Not what God wants. But unfortunately, there are people out there that have chosen that that's their line of action. And we are in a system where it's allowed. No one ever stops to think, you know, what happens to that child that grows up without a father figure or a mother figure for that instance. If God, you know, if I as a mother, right, could take care of the issues of a teenage growing boy, there would be no requirement for a man. Or if a man could take care of the puberty issues of a teenage girl, there will be no need for a woman. But God saw the need for a man and a woman to come together and to raise those children in a loving home. So when you look at it in one way or another, on a very day-to-day -day basis, you interact or you connect with someone who is a single parent. And you might not be one, 
But God needs us to be able to encourage those in that family group. You know, when I was growing up, when I had my children, mom, you never told me that parenting is for life. You know, we get told that, oh, you know, once the children are 18 years old, that's it. No, it's not the case. You're a parent for life. Even when they've flown the nest, you still have a responsibility to pray for them, to mentor them, to nurture them. And that's why God said of Abraham, he says, I know him. I have chosen him. For I know he will teach who? His children's children concerning me. Not just his children, but his children's children concerning me. So as a parent, our job is never done. There are things I still go to my mom for. Because I know she has that experience. And until our parents go home to glory, we will still need them. And when, even when that happens, God in his infinite mercy would make sure there's somebody else that we can go to. I shared with you how last week, how I, my dad passed away when I was only 13. The first of five children. I had to grow up real quick. But God brought somebody else into my life to be that father figure for me. We will never stop needing our fathers or our mothers. And that's why God placed them in our lives. You know, I'm not going to go through the statistics, but, you know, just to put it bluntly, single parenting is a fast-growing parent family group, and it's sad. So the question is, what do we do about it? Because we have a responsibility to ensure that those getting married don't fall into that group. Now, don't get me wrong. Circumstances, things happen. There are some that you can't avoid. If someone passes away, you can't avoid that. If someone falls ill to the point that they can't take care of themselves and their partner has to do the caring for the children and themselves, you can't really help that. But I'm talking about situations where out of no lack of knowledge or out of wrong choices, we end up in that family group. But I've got news for us this morning. The grace of God is made available for each and every one of us. You know, last week, and I don't know how many of you heard this in the news, that in the state of Alabama in the U.S., abortion is actually forbidden. I'm going to put it as strong as that. Except when the health of the mother is at risk. Now, the bit that really hurts, it also includes if someone gets raped. So that means that if someone gets raped, that pregnancy cannot be terminated. 
Now, I'm still struggling with that. But um, I suppose that's something for that would have to be dealt with. Because question is, if someone gets raped, it's a constant reminder. But they know why they've made that decision. So single parenting, it cuts across every age. So it's not one of these situations whereby, oh, when you're over 50 or when you're over 30, it could happen to anyone at any age. And we'll look, we'll look at that in the Bible. It could happen to you as a man. It could happen to you as a woman. I've known men that have been left holding the babies, literally. They might live with the mom, but the dad is the one that makes all those decisions. It cuts across every race. So it's not just something that's common to Africans or Caribbeans or, you know, the English. It cuts across every race. You know, the, the Bible, you know, and the... You know, the Lord showed me this this week, even though it's something I partially know. It's a, I, you know, it's a book of completion. And if any of you study the Bible and you find that there's a particular topic that's not in the Bible, please let me know. Because that is why the Bible has been given to us. So that every situation we face in life, there will be the Bible that we can go back to, which is the word of God. That's our manual while we're on earth. So we're going to read from Genesis chapter 16, and we're going to read from verse 1 to 11. For some of us who are scholars, we probably know what the account of that is. Amen. Can we have it in the NLT version, please? Do we have it there? Thank yeah. you. <coughs> Genesis 16, 1 to 11. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, The Lord has prevented me from having children. Go up and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened 10 years after Abram had settled into the land of Canaan. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress, Sarai, Sarai with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, this is all your fault. I put my servant in your arms, but now she's pregnant. <laughs> um, but now she's pregnant, and she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. Abram replied, look, she's your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside the spring of the water, in the wilderness, along 
the road of Shur. The angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she replied. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. And the angel also said, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard your cries of distress. Amen. 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 Can you read 15 and 16, please? 15 and 16. Yeah. So Hagar gave Abram a son, and Abram named him Ishmael. Amen. So this is the first account in the Bible that I see of a single parent. Because now we have, I mean, to start with, when I was going through this, my first thought was, wow, you know, you have a mistress, and she goes, there you go. That's my, that's my servant. You know, just go in with her. So whether Hagar liked it or not, she didn't have a choice. She had to be obedient. Now, when you look at it, Abraham's not her husband. Abraham is actually her master. But she had to do whatever she was told to do. Now she gets pregnant, and I don't know if it was the hormones that, you know, started to overwork in her. She felt that she had more authority or more, you know, pardon? She got comfortable, right, with her mistress. And that does happen, right? But the point here is she decided at one point that she was going to run away. And as she ran away, now if the angel of the Lord had not met with her, she would have been there on her own which was what eventually happened when we go on to read the account of what happens later. But already, we see within the first book of the Bible, we see a single parent. So that just goes to show and to tell me that whatever situation we face in life, God's grace is there and is abundant to help us through. So if we take a look at what's happened right through there. Now, Sarai, our mother, says to Abraham, you go ahead. Maybe the Lord will give me a son. And it's so interesting that when things like this happen in the Bible, have you noticed? They always come out with sons. It's always a son, a son, a son. So she goes ahead. She has a son. And they name him Ishmael which means God hears. God has heard my distress. And it's a good thing that she was obedient and went back. Otherwise, the account would have not been complete for us. So if we take a look, if you fast forward a few chapters, I don't know how many years, um, to chapter 21, and let's read about the other aspect of this, which is the birth of Isaac. So if you read chapter 21 from verse 1 to 7, start with. Amen. Amen. Genesis 21, 1 to 7. The Lord kept his word and did for Sarah exactly what he promised. She became pregnant and she gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. This happened at just the time God had said it would. 
And Abraham said, and, and Abraham named their son Isaac. Eight days after Isaac was born, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded. Abraham was a hundred years old when Isaac was born. And Sarah declared, God has brought me laughter. All who, all who hear about this will laugh with me. Amen. Who would have said to Abraham and Sarah would nurse a baby? Yet I have given Abraham a son in his old age. Amen. Amen. So, I mean, from reading, you all know the account. So, the angels came, they appeared to Abraham and said he would have a son, right? And his son will be the fathers of, you know, many generations. And Abraham, obviously, with Sarah, his wife, they decide to go ahead of God and to help God. And then God says, this is not the promised son. The one I have promised you is a covenant son. And God being so merciful, still goes ahead and says, right, if Sarah is going to get pregnant, she's going to have a son. This is what I need you to name him. And I would, my covenant would be with him. Now, if you read the account, it, he told Abraham to circumcise all the, female, uh, the, all the males in his house. And that included his servants. So he and Ishmael were actually circumcised on the same day. So you can read the account of that in chapter 16 or thereabouts. Now, when Isaac was eight days old, he did exactly the same thing. And culturally, you find that we do the same thing as well. As when we have a son, after the naming on the eighth day, we tend to go ahead and have a circumcision, even though it's not compulsory, right? But we still go ahead with that tradition, and we do it. So he has a son. He names the son. He circumcised the son. And then from there, we go on to verse 8. And this is where it gets. Amen. Amen. Go ahead. Uh, verse from verse 8. Yeah. When Isaac grew up and was about to be weaned, Abraham prepared a huge feast to celebrate the occasion. But Sarah saw Ishmael the son of Abraham and her Egyptian servant, Hagar, making fun of her son, Isaac. One second. Right. My question would have been, what was she doing looking at Isaac? Uh, sorry, at Ishmael. So that means, I mean, and this is my own conclusion, between the time that Ishmael was born and was growing up and the time that Isaac was born, there was still tension in the house. Would you agree with me? Because if there wasn't still tension in the house, right, Sarah wouldn't be concluding that Ishmael was making fun of her. So that means there was no peace in the home. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us about what's gone on in the background or what's happened you know, because those are probably not important. But what I can deduce from this was that there was still some sort of tension. Because if there, was, if there wasn't tension between them, if there wasn't tension between Sarah and Haggai, or Hagar as she's called, she w Sarah wouldn't conclude that Ishmael was making fun of her son. She would have said, you know what, that's your brother. I need you to respect him. I need both of you to be friends. I need both of you to grow up together. But there was tension. 
And she probably was just looking for that opportunity to say, you know what, I'm done with this. Now I've got my son. I'm done with this situation. So, verse 10, please. Amen. Verse 10. So she turned to Abraham and demanded, get rid of that slave woman and her son. He is not going to share the inheritance with my son, Isaac. And I won't, I won't have it. Amen. So, she turns to her husband and says, right, I'm done with this. I need you to just get rid of her. Now, and there's really no care for that son who would not have his father in his life. And when you look at life today, there are times when we're faced with situations where the other partner, be it the man or the woman, right, does not stop to think, if I walk out of this home, what will become of those children? Because unfortunately, what tends to happen a lot of times is when someone walks out, not only do they walk out on the partner, they also walk out on the children. Unfortunately, it's something that I have seen time and time again. And it begs the question, if you're fighting with the father or the mother, does that include the children? So we have a situation here. Sarah's demanded that Hagar move out with her son. Now, what would have been ideal is, get rid of Hagar, I'll take care of the son. That would be ideal, won't it? But that wasn't what happened. Now, this very much upset Abraham, because that is his son. And he goes on to say, you know, I mean, well, he, he was quite upset, and God says to him, no, do not be upset over the boy and your servant, but do whatever it is that your wife has asked you to do. So if we fast forward that to verse 14, let's read what the Bible tells us. Amen. Amen. So Abraham got up early the next morning, prepared food and a container of water, and strapped them on Hagar's shoulders. Then he sent her away with their son, and she wandered aimlessly in the wilderness of Bathsheba. When the water was gone, she put the boy in the shade of a bush. Then she went and sat down by herself about a hundred yards away. I don't want to watch the boy die, she said, as she burst into tears. But God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called Hagar from heaven. Hagar, what's wrong? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Go to him and comfort him, for I will make a great nation from his descendants. Then God opened Hagar's eyes, and she saw a well full of water. She quickly filled her water container and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy as he grew up in the wilderness. He became a skillful archer, and he settled in the wilderness of Paran. His mother arranged for him to marry a woman from the land of Egypt. About? Yeah, amen. Amen. That's fine. Thanks. So, Abraham sends Hagar away with a son. No child support. So, that meant that from that point in time, she was on her own. 
because he probably didn't know where she'd gone to and how she was going to feed. So what he gave her was probably enough for a day, two days, even if it was for a week. What happened, what was going to happen long term? And this basically typifies the walk of a single parent. When they're faced with a situation like this, there's pain, there's anguish, there's fear. What am I going to do? How am I going to bring up these children? How am I going to pay for my bills and sustain these kids? The song that was sung earlier on says, in the time of trouble, God would uphold me. He would sustain me. He would protect me. He would lift me up. You know, as I was studying this, the Lord brought to my remembrance, and I don't know if you've ever heard of a guy called Ben Carson. Ben Carson? Anyone heard about him? They call him Gifted Hands. If you haven't, please read about him. The guy was brought up by a single mother. Yeah, and he's a surgeon. He was, he's one of these guys that anyone he lays his hands to operate on, to treat, got healed. And that's why they named him Gifted Hands. What am I trying to say? The fact that you've been brought up or someone's child is a single, or the fact that you've been brought up by a single parent doesn't mean that you're going to go downhill. There are so many single parent kids out there that have made it. Unfortunately, some people use it as, as, as an excuse. Oh, it's because my mom's not in my life. It's, not, it's because my father is not in my life. And I say, you know what? Pull another one. I say, because I was brought up by a single parent. And you know, the mercy of God is always available. That when or if you're brought up by even a single parent, God would ensure that you don't lose out on that other parent as long as you connect with God. Another person we're going to have a quick look at is Ruth and Naomi. So let's have a quick look at the book of Ruth. Now, the book of Ruth was written at a point in time where there was so much darkness. You know, everyone was doing what they wanted to do, when they wanted to do it, what they thought was good in their own eyes. People were not worshipping God. They were worshipping idols. They were marrying from tribes that they weren't supposed to marry from, and God forbid that. They were worshipping false gods. You know, they, it was just a basic cycle of sin, of destruction, and then they'll cry out to God, and God would deliver them, and then they'll come back, and they'll start all over again. 
And that was how, what the book, the early part of the book of Ruth teaches us. But the actual book itself showcases when, you know, people made uninformed decisions that caused pain to themselves, caused a lot of stress, and caused pain to their own families as well. But when that happens, there's always a God that is willing and able to restore. Let's take a look at Luke chapter 1. If you start from verse 1, I'll stop you at points. Amen. Amen. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. Right, one second. So this man whose name is Elimelech, right, was living in a land that God has given them. They didn't work for it. So they were in that land, given to them by God. And now there was a famine there. And what do they do? Instead of them to pray unto God, they decide, you know what, let's pack up and go. Let's live where we are. Now, if you look at it, that name, Elimelech, actually in Hebrew, means king. So, Melech in Hebrew means king. Eli means God. So, put together, it means God is my king. Now, for someone who has a name like that, and his behavior and his lifestyle does not actually typify it because he does exactly the opposite of what his name means. So it's like someone saying, my name means God will provide. And then you treat God as if he would not provide. He does not obey God. Otherwise, if he was in a land and he knew that God was his provider and God is his king, when the famine came, what he would do would pray unto God and say, God, what would you have me do? But he makes a unilateral decision and says, right, come on, wife, let's go. Let's move. Let's find somewhere where there's, you know, there's greener pastures. And how many of us know that the grass is not always greener on the other side? So let's carry on. Verse 2, please. Amen. Amen. The name of this man was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two children was Marlon and Kilion. Kilab. Kilab. They, they were... Ephratites. Ephratites. That's what they were. From Bethlehem and the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two... The two sons married Moabite women. Okay, just a second. It says, then Elimelech died. Instantly, her status changes. She becomes a widow and a single parent. Okay? Go ahead, verse four. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Oprah, 
and the other married a woman named Ruth. Don't forget that these, they, they're now marrying in a foreign country, which is forbidden by God. Amen. Amen. But about 10 years later, Marlon and Kilon died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or okay. her husband. Okay, one second. So that means that now the two wives have now become widows. widows. So now we have three widows in the house. We have Naomi, we have Oprah, and we have Ruth, who are now all widows. Okay. Verse 6, please. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughter-in-laws got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughter-in-laws, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took to the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who can grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not. My daughters, things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again, they wept together and Oprah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and, and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die and I will be buried and there I'll be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. Then Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her and she said nothing more. The two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The woman asked. Amen. So, you know, from this passage, when you look at it, whatever situation you face in life, there will be always be one person that God would live with you to say, you know, this person will stick with you through thick and thin. So here we have Naomi who's got the two daughter-in-laws. Now she said, I've released you. You can go back home. You can go back to your family. Go back to your gods. You know, you're still young enough to have a husband and to have children. As for me, the Lord's fist has been raised against me. So she's probably at an age where she feels that she can't get married anymore or she can't have children anymore. And she just basically said, well, I'm going to go back and I'm just going to wallow in my sorrows as it were. So she had resigned herself to the fact that that's it, done for her. 
and she was encouraging her daughter-in-laws to say, you know what, there's still life ahead of you. You just go ahead. But we see here that Ruth stuck with her and say, I'm not leaving you. Where you go, I would go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And let only death separate us. So in fact, what she has basically done is say, you know what, from today onwards, you're not my mother-in-law. You are my mom. You are my mom. And that is how I am going to, that's the relationship that's going to be between the two of us. Because when she got married, it was for life. Never in her wildest dreams did she think that 10 years into her marriage, her husband would die. And she had made up her mind that she was going to stick with her mother-in-law too thick, through thin, whatever it takes. Even if that meant she wasn't going to get married again, if that meant she wasn't going to hold a baby, she was prepared for it. Naomi gets back home. And you know, it, it took such courage for someone to be able to leave and go back empty-handed. Now, Naomi means pleasant. So there's always that expectation. And for us, it's when you go to a foreign land. When you're going back home, people expect you to come back home much better than when you left. Some of us who have come out from Nigeria, from Ghana, from wherever it is, when you decide that you want to go back to your motherland, as it were, there's the expectation that you would have built a house, you would have a car, you'll come back with your wife or your husband, with grandchildren. You know, at least you come back better than when you left. And sometimes those are part of the prayers that, you know, the elders pray. That when you come back, you come back bigger and better. Because they believe that going to a foreign land is for you to go and work and come back. So it took a lot for Naomi to be able to go back empty-handed, as it were. Also the fact that she was going back with a foreign daughter-in-law that was forbidden. So not only are you coming back empty-handed, you're actually bringing back a burden as well. Because it was forbidden for them to marry outside of their culture. They expected to see her back with her husband, her sons, their wives, and a few grandchildren. But they confronted a woman who had lost everything that was near and dear to her. And then coming back with a foreigner. But what Naomi was experiencing was the fruit of a wrong decision that was made by her husband. Had Elimelech stayed and sought the face of God, they might have not been in that situation. Wrong decisions. 
Verse 20, she said, don't call me Naomi. She responded, he said, call me Mara, for the Lord has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused so much pain and suffering? You know, and we, it's just so amazing how sometimes, you know, God helps people to pull themselves together. You know, the Bible tells us about the, the, the situation with the prodigal son. The Bible says when he came to his senses. And you know, I'll share with you, for someone who has been down that road of single parenting, it's never the best. And it's not, that, it's not easy. It takes the grace of God. Because you ask yourself, how do I cope? Where do I go from here? I have high praises for my mom. Had a husband one night, woke up the next morning, he was gone. And she had five children to raise. Five children. Mom, well done. It takes the grace of God. If you come from a culture where I grew up in, I'll tell you what they do. Oh, five children. She's not going to be able to take care of them by herself. One should go to uncle whatever, and another one should go to auntie whatever, and they'll probably leave one or two with her and split all the others. But this woman said, you know what? If I'm drinking Gary, Gary in those days was poor man's food. Sorry, right, Dad, I had it yesterday. My mom said, if I'm drinking Gary, my children will drink it with me. She did not go by the norm. And I'm so grateful to God for her. It only took, it took God. So if we fast forward into the other chapters, Naomi goes back with Ruth. And she says, well, this is home. I'm back home, even though I'm back empty. Because I heard that God has now provided bread in Bethlehem. Let us go back. We might have to start from where we were before, but at least we're amongst our own people. It cannot be so bad that everyone turns their back on you. Bible says when she got back, they were excited to see her. Even though she wasn't excited to be back there, but she knew that was the only place she had. And as we read the account further on, Ruth gets to work in the field of Boaz. Now, as at that time, Boaz was not around, 
Bible says he was away. And when he came back, said, who is that young lady in the field? And they said, it's Naomi's daughter-in-law. This is where favor begins to step in. Naomi, she and she said, let's go back. No matter how bad it is, there will be food for us to eat. There will still be people who will be excited to see us. And as we read further, Ruth starts working in the field of Boaz. And we find out that Boaz is actually part of Elimelech's family. He's the king's man, redeemer. He was not actually the one next in line. She walks, and Naomi becomes her mentor. Teaches her what she should do, where she should go, how she should behave. She takes on the role of a mother who wants the best for her daughter. And because Ruth has been honorable in honoring her mother-in-law, God honors her. Not only does God honor her, but God also favors her. The reward of service. And I would just like to think, what was it her parents, her parents would have said, are you going to go? You're, we're not going to see you again. Because can you imagine going to tell your parents that, oh, mom, you know what? Dad, I'm actually leaving. I'm going to go with my mother-in-law. To, uh, for, wow, to her, it would have been a foreign land. And her parents might never see her again. The first question as a mother is, so what's going to happen? Are you going to remarry? Aren't you going to have children? I mean, your husband's dead, so why don't you just stay here and get married to somebody else? After all, your mother-in-law has released you. But the reward of faithful service. Let's have a quick look at chapter 2. And verse I don't want us to read the whole thing, but um, okay, let me let me pick this. It says now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband. It says one day Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. So she actually was waiting and just looking for leftovers. And I'm, um, then Naomi replied, all right, my daughter, you just go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. As, as it happened, she found herself working in the field that belonged to Boaz, which we knew about. 
And when she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. Then Boaz asked his foreman, who is this young woman over there? Who does she belong to? And they replied, she's Naomi's relative. Then Boaz goes over to Ruth and said, listen, my daughter, stay right here with me. When you gather your grain, that is favor at work. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting, then follow them. That's training him there. I have warned them, I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you, when you are thirsty, help yourself to water they have drawn from the well. And Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. I am only a foreigner. Yes, Boaz said, yes, I know, Boaz replied, but I also know about everything that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. Favor time. It says, I have heard how you left your father and left your mother and left your hometown, your land to live here among complete strangers. It says, may God, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have taken refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. Amen. And, you know, the account goes on and goes on to the point that, you know, he keep, she keeps getting favor. She keeps getting favor because she is a hard worker. And when she comes and she gets grain, she goes back and she shows it to Naomi to say, this is what I've brought back home. These are my wages for today. And Boaz keeps, he orders his uh, men and says, you know, let her, let her gather grain from among the... So now it's no more the leftovers, but let her gather grain from the main bundles of barley that's on the fields there. And make sure that you actually drop some for her so that you make her work easy. And please don't give her a hard time while she's doing it. And every time she gathers, she'll go back and show her mother-in-law. And that favor is also extended to Naomi as a result of that because now there was more than enough food for them to eat. You know, at one point, Naomi blesses Boaz and says, you know, may the Lord bless him. It says, Naomi told the daughter-in-law, he is showing the kindness to us because of her husband and because of her sons. And when you look at it, he's part of their family anyway. And then we go on to chapter 3, which talks about the threshing floor. And this is where Naomi continues to mentor her. And Boaz, in turn, praises her. At one point, he says to um, uh, Ruth, he says, I am glad that you're not going after the riches of the young guys. You, have, you are cultured. You have been taught well. You're not looking after, looking for, oh, what can he offer me? 
you're looking at proper security. And you're doing it humbly, not out of pride. And it goes on to show that, you know, at one point, you know, Boaz, knowing his position in the family, calls a meeting. And I, I really like how he did that. He goes to the city gates and he calls a meeting and says, right, now knowing this little uh, young lady's situation, I am not the one next in line. So let's do things the right way. And he calls the one who is next in line as the king's man redeemer. And he says, right, this is the situation. There's a young lady here, right? She is Naomi's daughter-in-law. Naomi has a piece of land that needs to be sold. See how it goes about it. Are you able to redeem that land? And what does it say? It says, yes, I will. Now, let's read that so that at least we, we can all see that bit. Let's read chapter 4, please. Verse 1. Shall I just read from verse 1? Yeah, go ahead. Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. Just then, the family redeemer he had mentioned came by. So Boaz called out to him, come over here and sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. So they sat down together. Then Boaz called ten leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. Mm -hmm. And Boaz said to the family redeemer, you know Naomi, who came back from Moab. She is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I am next in line to redeem it after you. The man replied, all right, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz told him, of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, a Moabite widow, that she can have children and will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. Then I can't redeem it. <laughs> the family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land. <laughs> I cannot do it. Amen. 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 You know, I, I really like the way Boaz goes about it. Says, right, okay. You want the land? The land comes with a wife. Right? Double, double. So, if you want the land, you have the land plus the wife. If you don't want the wife, you can't have the land. Now, he had to look at his own situation as well. Because you can't have a wife that you cannot cater for. But when you look at the whole situation here, either the family redeemer who turned it down married Ruth, or Boaz married Ruth, they would have ended up with a blended family. So he's turned it down, and that actually gives Boaz now the right. And, the, you know, the account goes on that they exchange a shoe, which is what in those days, you, they, I mean, that was like the... That was the requirement 
to say, right, now this is what we've agreed on. Here's a pair, of, well, one of my shoes, and they had witnesses there to say, right, we were witnesses. You know, peradventure, in another five, ten years' time, something happens and there's a denial. At least some of those people will still be alive to say, we were witnesses, and the shoe would be stand as a witness. So that was really a covenant in those days. Amen. So we know that, you know, Ruth goes on to become Boaz's wife, and then, you know, she gets pregnant. She gives birth to Obed, who becomes the, the, the grandfather of Jesse, and, you know, the story goes on to the lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ. But, you know, the point I want to pull out of this is we have Naomi who at one point became a single mother but God redeemed all that he favored her and you know the Bible says that Naomi was again able to carry a baby the baby that she was not able to carry through her two sons God redeemed that. And almost like our mother Sarah, God put a smile on her face and laughter and joy within her. You know, to the point that they said, the people of the town said to her, then the women of the town said to Naomi, praise the Lord, you, you who has provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. It says, for he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than more than seven sons. You know, couldn't have got any better than that. So, question is, you know, as a single parent, we go through struggles. Struggles to provide for the children. Struggles to pay the bills. Sometimes there's the lack of emotional support for the child. Because... Whether you like to look at it that way or not, there will be certain things that will be missing at key points in their lives. You know, it reminds me, and I don't know if you've ever watched this film, um, Three Men and a Little Lady. Have you seen it? See the guys trying to take a four-year-old to toilet in a public place. Or if you have a little boy as a mother and you're trying to, you know, take him to a public toilet, there would always be those gaps. Or if you end up as a blended family, there would always be those situations with his children accept me. With her children, accept me. My children are fighting your children. Or my children and your children are fighting our children. 
it's not always the best. It's not always God's best. But there's grace. So as a single parent, what do we do? After all said and done, what do we do? Or what do we encourage people? The first is, with God, nothing is impossible. The book of Luke, chapter 1, tells us that. And there are specific things that can help. Do we have those slides? No? Okay, that's fine. Bible says his grace is sufficient for you to overcome any and every obstacle. That is only if you fully surrender to God. So as a single parent or as somebody who knows a single parent who is going through a situation, encourage them to fully surrender to God. Make God your number one priority. You know, when you face situations, difficult situations, what we tend to do is run away from God. But God is saying, come to me, all ye who labor or are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. No matter what, make time for God. I tell you, when I started to make time for God, things began to change for me. I used to make excuses, and I found the excuses got me nowhere. And when I was encouraged, be at church, be at Bible study, be at prayer meeting, make time for God. Things began to change. If you're a single parent, get connected. Get connected with people, like-minded people who love God, who have walked down that same road and can encourage you to say, this is how we did it. This is how God helped us. I walked in fear. I walked in shame. I walked in anguish. But I tell you what, there's nothing to be ashamed about. There's nothing to be fearful about. As long as we're working with God. Now, sometimes we want to do it alone. Oh, I can do it. I can be the dad. I can be the mom. I had to get to a point where I used to, I had to get people, hey, I need help in this area. I need help in that area. Let's ask for help. That is why we are a family of Christ. That is why we're in a church. And that's why we say we are in a family. A family helps each other. So don't think you're expected to do it alone. And don't think that you can do it alone. I remember as a young, as a young teenager, I rebelled a little bit. And 
whenever I, a little bit, just a little bit. <laughs> and my mom would come home and say, ah, this person wants to see you. And you know what that means? That means that person needs to have strong words with me because I have been disobedient. But there was always somebody there that my mom could turn to. And my mom would say, ah, eba lola soro. For those who don't understand my lingua, it means speak to Lola. <laughs> As in Lola needs advice. Not just the one mothers give, but the ones that fathers give. It's all well. And you know, we thank God for people like that. You know, I remember from the time I started coming to Living Word Ministries. If I phoned my mom and said, um, Mom, this is what I want to do. My first thing my mom would say is, have you spoken to Pastor Charles? Because my mom now saw Dad as a father figure for me. So whatever Pastor Charles says. As a single parent, Accept that season of your life. You know, there is a reason why we have the four seasons of the year. It would not always be rosy. There will be seasons of our lives when it's up. There will be seasons when it's down. Accept those seasons. And trust God that it will not always be down. I've accepted that when the seasons are down, those are seasons that I need to hold firm. Those are seasons of learning. Those are seasons of nurturing. And we need to try and set realistic goals. But whatever it is, we need to remember that God can make up for what we cannot do for our children. And he will make up. And that is why you see kids out there who have been raised by single parents and have turned out extremely well because the hand of God has been upon them. And I encourage you today that if you're a single parent, if you have friends that are single parents, colleagues, relatives, encourage them that whatever it is, they should make God their goal in life. You know, my constant phrase when I say, talk about single parents, is I partner with God. God is my partner when it comes to bringing up my children. Because God can do for my children even what their own biological father cannot do for them. 
And you know what? No one who partners with God ever fails. I have never seen anyone who partners with God and fails. So that's my word for you today. And that's why I encourage you all. If you have a friend, if you have a family member, if you find yourself in that situation, be encouraged. God is on your side. And there's always grace, the abundant grace of God that keeps getting multiplied unto us. Amen. Thank you for listening. Join us for our weekly Sunday service at 10.30am at 336 Brixton Road. We hope you were blessed.